Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and I'm talking with another Atlanta drummer today, I'm happy to say. Justin Chazarek moved here 10 years ago to attend grad school at Georgia State and has been here ever since, playing with pianist Gary Motley, the Joe Gransden Big Band, singer-songwriter Sam Birchfield, uh, the Equinox Orchestra, the leaders of which were featured on one of our recent episodes, and many more. Justin also teaches at two area universities, Kennesaw State and Emory. As always, we encourage you to donate to our Patreon page to help keep the podcast going and growing. There are lots of great incentives there for donations at just about any level, all of which are greatly appreciated. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash working drummer. Also follow us on social media, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag working drummer and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and review there. So Justin was one of the first drummers to welcome me to Atlanta when I first moved here. Uh, and we have similar paths in that we were both dedicated almost exclusively to jazz early in our careers but have since branched out considerably, uh, rediscovering the other styles that we fell in love with as we were growing up uh, and discovering new ones today. Uh, and the wide variety of great music and musicians at, in Atlanta uh, played a role in that for both of us. So here we go with Justin Jazarek. Tell me about the trip to Alaska you just took. Okay. Uh, Alaska was great. Um, went up there with piano player Gary Motley, who uh, I started working with just about couple months after I moved to Atlanta in 2008. Mm-hmm. He is a uh, Alabama native who really styled in the playing of uh, Oscar Peterson, but he's got kind of a, you know, a Herbie thing going too. And, and also, I mean, his own compositions and ideas have really made him one of my favorite piano players that I work with. So yeah. we've had a good playing relationship for a number of years, and this is definitely the furthest he's ever asked me to go. So, um, so the, uh, festival director of, uh, the Juno jazz and classics, uh, was also a friend of ours from Emory Mm -hmm. and, um, invited us to come up there. So yeah, we went up, it was, uh, it was a lot of hours of travel. Yeah. Furthest away in the U S that I've ever been. Yeah. Um, it's been a number of years since I've gone to the uh, West coast, but, (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't really, I didn't really remember much about it from the first time I went. So right, and you know, I, I don't think of Alaska as the West Coast. I just <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Um, it was beautiful though when we uh, when we left. I think it was you know it was super early, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I didn't get a lot of sleep the night before because I was really excited to go. Because I, I I think um, I spent months leading up to it reading about Alaska and and. Uh, kind of getting an idea of what I wanted to do when I got there. Right. So I wasn't clueless. Um, cause I was going to have about a day to myself to uh-huh. really take it in. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, so we got up there and I just hit the ground running. So I was awake for about 22 hours straight by the time that we, you know, ended that day. Right. But, um, anyway, it was beautiful. I've never seen a place like that. Like I said, it kind of reminded me of Switzerland a little bit, uh-huh. but, uh, Man, the people, the vibe, the the food, the coffee, everything about being there was 
was really inspiring. So, mm-hmm. um, walked around day one, just took it as much of it in, in as I could. It was a beautiful day. Yeah. And then, uh, day two, we woke up, we did a couple of jazz outreach things to, uh, two schools that are in Juneau. Right. Like high is, school. Yeah. They're, they're kind of like, um, I think of them almost like a little magnet schools. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the schools, the kids had just got back from a camping trip huh. and, uh, they had this, uh, class pet which was like a reptile of some sort and you know they had a piano it was really really cool you know it seemed like uh it reminded me of atlanta a little bit you know just like the interesting people that live here you know like yeah. the, the kids had their own identities you know they were into their own things and, right right you know all really interesting so we played some jazz for them which you know they they have this big arts festival every year is they, that what you were part of yeah like, okay yeah it's the uh jazz and classics festival so okay you know, they'll focus on classical music. They'll bring in, uh, this year they had some folk musicians coming and played. So, um, but yeah, so, you know, we brought some jazz into the classroom. That was really cool. Did a Mm -hmm. little teaching and then we rehearsed and and got ready for the gig that night. So, um, it was really memorable. Yeah. You know, there's something about being up there. Uh, it was raining a lot the second day that we were there. Mm -hmm. So I spent about three hours in the Alaska history museum just to kind of get out of the rain a little bit. Right, right. And uh, that was leading right up into the point where we were supposed to show up for the gig. So I I really was trying to take in everything I could from that environment. Mm-hmm. And I felt I, I felt like I was in a great headspace to go into the gig. Hmm. Um, you know, learning about the people, learning about the culture, the history of Alaska, you know. And after having just been super inspired by the views and the you know the 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 air really is so pleasant. It <laughs> smells good. It breathes well. Yeah. You know, it's cool and refreshing. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, so I was just in a really good headspace, and we had a blast. I mean, yeah, I uh, remember you saying that that was like the gig itself. Just the playing on that gig itself was like a highlight for you. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes coming in into gigs in Atlanta and around here. You, you get in the car, you're, you're rushed, you're dealing with traffic and stress from the day. Yeah. I think there's really something I, I, I listened to an interview with, uh, Mark Juliana mm-hmm. a while ago where he talked about being on the road with Brad Meldow on their duo thing. And, uh, he said he, he spends the whole day of the gig trying to get himself in the right headspace to play. Uh-huh. And I just remembered him saying that. And, uh, I, so I sort of had that mentality um, going into it and, you know, I, I felt like when we got there, I was ready, right. you know, I was ready to play. Right. And, um, you know, it was a great performance. I remember just, just having so much fun that probably smiling nonstop from <laughs> the second we started to when we finished. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had a good 13 hours of, of, uh, travel. Right. The next day that's home, that's so. the part you get paid for. <laughs> not nearly enough time, you know, not nearly enough, uh, time to experience it but i want to go back and uh i hope we do and uh, who was the bassist on that gig billy thornton oh billy who is uh you know every drummer should get the chance to play with billy yeah he uh you know i just all i can say about him is i just trust him you right. know and uh and i trust his musical instincts and he'll he'll always be a team player and he'll always surprise you too. Yeah, you know, and yeah. he'll he'll take the music places that you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. And um, the creativity and just the vibe on stage is 
it's uh, I, I wish everybody could experience it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're in good hands. It was funny. I, I saw um, Tedeschi Trucks Band last Saturday, and my wife, <clears throat> my wife said the same thing about Tim Lafave. Like she she leaned over to me and she was like, I trust him. Yeah. I, like I feel like I'm in such good hands. Like he's he's gonna take me some places I don't expect, <laughs> but I I just trust him. You know. That's a that's an ultimate. I would think that's the ultimate compliment for a bass player or a drummer. I think. I'd sure. I'm, yeah. I'd hope they'd say the same thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, trust. I mean, that's just one of those things on the bandstand. You can hear musicians when they do or do not trust the circumstances, and they might they may not know they don't trust right the people they're playing with right and uh you know but when it's right and when you hook up with that you know bassist or whatever that you just believe in you know that they're going to have your back no matter what happens right. musically yeah man it I, it really feels like you can do anything which that uh that kind of freedom i i wish that all the gigs had that kind of freedom attached to them yeah you know? yeah and there's there's sometimes a feeling that you can do anything but uh, there's also sometimes a feeling that you don't have to do anything. Yeah, you know, you don't you don't have to force the music or the groove in, in a certain way. You don't have to impose your will on it because if you're in, you know, if you're with people you trust, you just let it. That's right. Go and you know, be along for the ride and being along for the ride. That's that's the whole that's yeah, the whole thing. That's a beautiful thing, especially in a trio setting. Right. Like I, um, it, if if I'm playing in a jazz setting, my my two my two favorite things to do are big band and trio the midsize groups in between. Like I, I like that. Okay. But like the, I, I find something special about the big band and the trio. Um, yeah. And the, just the role of the drummer in those, in those two contexts. They're definitely, they, my they are definitely related. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I just read, uh, Stan Levy's, uh, I guess it was his autobiography, mm-hmm. but he, uh, he had a lot of time in, uh, in the big band and, uh, he was talking about keeping the ends tucked in. <laughs> you know, he said, he said, when you're playing drums with the big band, you're listening to 18 people and, uh, you really have to listen to all the, all the ends of the group. You're listening for the very player down on the, you know, down on the bottom end, you're listening to the lead players in the top end. You're making sure that everybody is, is in line yeah. you know, and your playing can really directly impact how good it is or, or not. Yeah. Drums are just one of those crucial instruments, I think. Yeah. But in the trio, like you said, it's it's really the same thing. I think part of the reason is in in trio playing and big band playing, you have to organize the music very specifically mm-hmm. and orchestrate it very specifically. Yeah. Uh, your textures and your your colors and everything like that. There, there's probably a, a a code by now of stylistic ways that you could you know, when you're playing a, a bassy chart, you know, if you're not riding the hi-hats for a good while, you're, you know, you're not really serving the music. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a lot more to it than that, but really, I mean, you, the, the job of the drummer in those two groups is, is so significant and I think can really impact if it's going to be a good performance or not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, what are Gary's compositions like? Uh, they've changed over the years. Cause you know, at this point we've almost been playing together for 10 years, but yeah, that's a long um, time. you know, when I met Gary, we were doing a lot of straight ahead swinging. Um, you know, Gary is, he's a wonderful piano player in the, you know, just straight ahead swing style. Um, but over the years, his compositions have moved more into, um, 
straight eighth kind of feels. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've really been inspired by a lot of different things, but but he's a, a very uh, intellectual person and he writes from the heart and, and he writes with, uh, he writes with themes in mind hmm. and uh, every composition Gary's ever brought in to us to play. He's, he's had a good uh, visual representation of it. You know, we, we get to one section and he'll say, you know, that's the dog running around in the backyard there. Think like that. <laughs> this section is playful. Think about a kid playing with blocks or, uh, he always finds a way to relate the music to something that we have seen right. in a lifetime. Right. And um, when you get there in the chart, you have a reference point. Mm-hmm. You know, to ten different drummers, that'll mean ten different things, which is which is really fun. Right. But um, you know, so there's that element to it. And and do you think you're successful in because like you know Gary imparts this stuff to you about how you know what what this composition is and how it should be played. So then, do you as a group? Uh, you know, are, are you able to convey that to the audience without talking to them? Like, well, you know, if they if they're thinking about the title of the song, because you know, I know Gary thinks seriously about the titles. I love of that. Tunes. I love that. You know, he's never brought in for what it's worth. He's never brought in a, a chart that was called untitled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that wouldn't. I don't think that would mean anything to him. In, pro- in fact, he probably would think about a title and write a tune because of it. Right. You know. Yeah. Or. Uh, you know, I'm not really, I'm not always sure, but, uh, he will, he will paint a picture and, and a lot of times he'll explain to the audience, yeah. you know, what they should be listening for. And, and I think that that helps because we've had, uh, we've had a number of performances. I remember where people would come up and say things afterward, like I really heard it, <laughs> which is, you know, again, it's like another compliment you really hope to hear. I think. Yeah. And man, I think, I think it's so important for, for jazz musicians to do that because I, I can't tell you how many friends compositions I've played that are not only, you know, kind of musically inaccessible, you know, if, if the average, <laughs> if the average yeah. listener hears it, they're just going to be like, well, that was a bunch of notes and I'm not sure really what it means. But then like, you know, if, if you hear something that's inaccessible to you, but then you see a title that kind of explains it a little bit, that, you know, that goes such a long way. But, I've you know, I've, I've seen and played so many tunes that are obscure, right. inaccessible music with an obscure, inaccessible title and, and no explanation. <laughs> like, they just get on the bandstand and they're like, this is called such and such. Right. You know, and it, it means nothing to anybody except the people on stage. That's right. And I love when I see, you know, a, a musician like Gary or Josh Nelson or John Schofield or Bobby Watson. I could go on and on about all the, you know, players and composers that I love in jazz. But like you said about Gary, they're intentional about, um, they're almost impressionistic yeah, about like marrying a, like a scene or a concept with a soundtrack right. to that scene or concept and titling it appropriately. <laughs> I mean, the thing about, you know, the thread about these guys that you were just saying, it's playing is not the issue. These cats can really play. Right. You know, I right. mean, they're not. Uh, I think some writers write stuff around their their wheelhouse or what, what they know they can play well. It's really not the, the problem here. You know, there's a bigger thing in mind, you know, it's that it is, it is making an impression. It, it is painting a picture. It's, uh, you know, telling a story, which I know that they're, they're thinking about. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's cool. That's to me, that's, that's fun. I think the other kind of music that 
that you were just talking about with it's an abstract composition with an abstract title that you can't really latch on to. Music like that for me has always been more fun to go hear in mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. than maybe listen to on my own. Yes, definitely. I, I think it's it's a little easier to get when you can kind of see the emotions of the players, see their faces. Right. And, it's an expressionist you know. form. Right. It's yeah. You know, and maybe that's just me, but jazz specifically, which I I guess I play most often, mm-hmm. you know. Uh it, it really needs to have uh some context to me. Yeah. I really love songs. Yeah. You know, I love uh songbook kind of stuff. I love singers. I love playing with singers because it's it's always like, you know, it's it's always a, a nice thing to get to uh hear the lyrics and have a reason to play it. Right. A, a specific way. The song's a specific way. So, um you know, when it's abstract, it can just be a little too difficult to put it all into place. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where when we say we're going to go see a concert, that's, that's what we're talking about. But, right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm with you on that. You grew up in Pittsburgh. Close by. Close by. I've, I've adopted Pittsburgh as my hometown. Okay. It, I'm looking at a Pittsburgh Pirates hat right you now. You are, yeah. Uh, uh, bad hair day hat. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I really love uh, that city. Um, it's a beautiful place. I... I don't know what it would be like if I lived there now, mm-hmm. um, but at the time I moved to Atlanta, I just wasn't really playing many gigs and wasn't really working with the people that I wanted to be working with. Of course, I was pretty pretty young and naive, too, I, I think. Right. You were just out of college when yeah. you moved here, right? Right. Yeah. And you went to college where? I went to a, a school called Slippery Rock University. Uh-huh which uh, surprisingly a lot of people have heard of. Um, it seemed like <laughs> it's a, a memorable little, name. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, they, they're known for having a really strong education program. You know, Pennsylvania schools are, are very tough on educators and make sure that the standards are high. Mm-hmm. So um, I came out of this, this education program, which when I was in uh, high school studying with the, this uh, drum teacher, David Glover, Dr. Dave Glover, who uh, is a remarkable teacher um, and also a remarkable player. But mm-hmm. and he told me, he said, if you'd like to teach or think that you'd like to teach, you should do ed in in uh, undergrad because the performance degree isn't really going to get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. He said, you don't really need a performance degree, but you have to have something to say that you're certified to teach. Right. You can't just walk up into that environment and expect that you're going to have a job eventually. Right. But, um, we'll get back to that, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I grew up in, in a little town called Butler, Pennsylvania and, um, nice kind of countryside outside of the, uh, the big city of Pittsburgh, about 40 minutes. But, yeah. um, I had a drum teacher there named Randy Roth, mm-hmm. who's still there. And, um, I need to catch back up with him cause I miss him a lot. But, mm-hmm. uh, he was he was a great drum instructor. He he took me in when I was uh, ten years old, mm-hmm. and I loved the Beatles. I was obsessed with the Beatles. Me too. Yeah. I was a total Beatle maniac. It was, you know until my teenage years when it was like it became Guns and Roses. But up uh, until about age twelve, it was just all Beatles all the time. Man, I don't you know I never really lost it. And was some friends of ours were doing the uh, the White Album. They were playing it live this past weekend. Oh right, yeah, I and that. Uh, 
So I started listening to that again because that was always my favorite one yeah. out of all the Beatles albums. But huge Ringo fan, always been. He was really the reason that I started playing the drums in Me the first too. place. Me too. So, yeah, my, my teacher, Randy, he was he had a, pl- a plan for me. You know, we worked out all the classics. We worked out of Charlie Wilcoxon. We worked yeah. out of uh, Syncopation. We worked worked on a lot of those linear drum books that were popular in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just that kind of stuff. But the one thing about him that really changed my life, I think, was uh, he gave me two of the first CDs that I ever owned, <laughs> which were uh, Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane. Whoa. And John Coltrane Live at the Village Vanguard. And uh, the Vanguard one was a compilation of many different things at the at the Vanguard, so it wasn't uh, one specific album. But I listened to that one, and I didn't get it at all because at the time I was really listening to uh, you know like Ben Folds Five, Weezer, and any you know like probably uh, TLC or something like right, that. Right, right. <laughs> and um, I didn't really have any knowledge of jazz at all. But that Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane record with, uh, you know, it's basically the Wynton Kelly trio. Uh-huh. It is the Wynton Kelly trio on there. Um, that I immediately was drawn to. And something about the sound of the jazz guitar and and everything. But mm-hmm. I, I love the the artwork on the, the cover. And yeah. I remember just kind of getting my little CD player out and pulling out the liner notes and reading about these people. I had no idea who they were. Right. In fact, I do remember, I couldn't believe that it was the same saxophone player between the two albums. Cause I, <laughs> I couldn't get with the Vanguard album. Right. All, right. And was, was that like the quartet with Elvin and yeah, on some tracks. And then there was some later stuff too, that had, you know, Alice playing piano on it and everything. Mm. So I just, I just, I don't know. That one didn't speak to me, but mm-hmm. it did. What, what I did get out of it was an early appreciation for jazz. And then, uh, my teacher Randy, he he took me to go hear some uh, local jazz artists that were either in Pittsburgh or in in Butler, where I grew up, mm-hmm. and then I I had some context for it. Yeah, because really, I mean, I was I was listening to all these bands from the '90s and everything, and and that was just because that was what was on. That's right. what I had access right, to, right. and the Beatles. But mm-hmm. um, my dad also had a great collection of cassette tapes. So I remember uh, practicing along with Al Green, <laughs> greatest hits. I love Al Green. I still do. Um, I love those grooves. But yeah. uh, there was some good stuff in there. I think my parents had a pretty diverse listening uh, palette. And and so that impacted me from an early age. Yeah. And uh, I just liked practice when I was a kid mm-hmm. so much. I had a little Rogers kit with no bottom heads on it. <laughs> and we had fun. But Well, I like I like playing when I was a kid. I didn't like practicing. <laughs> yeah, same, same. Yeah. Same. I can remember days where my uh my I saw my dad pulling in the driveway so I'd run downstairs and pretend like I was practicing. And got home. I was like, yeah, I just finished practicing. <laughs> my my arms are about to fall off. I did so many paradiddles. Yeah. yeah. I think he knew. Right. Of course he knew. They always know. Um, so, uh, was your teacher kind of an early role model for you, um, as to what it looks like to be a professional musician, like a realistic, immediate role model at the time? Uh, that was the only impression of what I knew. It it was either him or like seeing Ringo play at Shea stadium on the, on the, you know, the documentaries and stuff. So, uh, we would go and hear him play. There was a little uh, little bar and restaurant there that I don't think is open anymore. It's called Natilly's, but 
he literally played there. I don't think it was every night. I think he probably played there like Tuesday through Sunday night or something like that. I, mm-hmm. I remember it was a lot. And he lived close by, so he'd always walk there. He had he was the house drummer. He booked all the bands that came through, and they had to play with him, even if it was like a band. What a racket! I know. <laughs> he, he carved out a, a great living for himself. You More know? power to him. And he man. was teaching lessons all day long out of the house. Yeah, he's a great spirited guy. I mean, he is a great spirited guy. But um, he, uh, you know, we come out. I'd be a ten year old kid with my dad sitting at a bar at eleven o'clock at night, and he'd let me sit in with all the bands that came through. Wow. Which I, I knew looking back on it, some of the bands were like, you gotta be kidding me. This 10 year old kid's going to come and play. And, uh, everybody was so warm and welcoming though. Mm -hmm. And, uh, allowed me to do that. Or maybe they didn't want me to do it, but my teacher was so gracious to stick me up there. Um, it was an environment that looking back, it probably didn't make any difference though. I'm sure the bar people thought it was hilarious that there was a 10 year old kid at the bar. And, but, um, that experience of getting up on stage, it, I mean, I probably started when more like when I was 12 or or something really going up to play, but, um, that experience was priceless. I mean, you know, it, it makes me want to make a side point of parents with kids in music you know, my dad was willing to make a sacrifice to take me out to mm-hmm. a bar on oftentimes weeknights and stay up late. And he'd have to get up and do his, his work in the morning. You yeah. know, I'd have to go to school, but I mean, that changed my life in terms of, uh, my understanding of it. Cause I mean, you know, I, I teach at the colleges now I've got students that come through that have never played at a a, a bar or anything before, right or in you know, front of people or in front of people and, I, and it's part of me like can't believe that because <laughs> I, I was doing it when i was basically you know in, in elementary school or something right, you know? so right. i don't know but uh but yeah i mean that's a serious thing i mean it, it really makes an impact when your parents are available or are going to take you out to make sure that you're getting that experience of hearing live music sitting in, you know, I was really fortunate. My, my teacher was willing to let me go up and even play one or two songs that yeah. we'd been rehearsing together and right. practicing. So I, he knew I wouldn't go up there and blow it totally. Right. And, um, you know, it's invaluable and it, and it gave me access to some musicians, which was funny because some of them started to call me and I didn't even have a license or anything. You know, my dad would have to take me to gigs <laughs> and I'd show up at the gigs and gosh, I probably only knew like, 10% of the songs that we play, but uh-huh. I mean, that's what you have to do. Yeah. You know, there's no way that you can prepare yourself fully for, for what happens on a, on a bandstand. Right. You know, so and were, those were jazz gigs. Not, no, most of them were not. Most of them were kind of blues and, yeah. and rock gigs and, um, variety gigs, I guess, you know, right. we might play a jazz song in the night. Right. But, um, the first guy that I started working with was this guy named Harold Betters, who is a, a, I think he's still out there, but he's a, a trombone player that came out of Pittsburgh and he liked to play all the jazz songs with a backbeat. So he'd be, <laughs> you know, walking the dog on the ride cymbal, but he'd always want two and four on the snare drum. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you meant like a halftime hip hop. No, just, <laughs> just straight up like, dang, 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 dang. Right. Sorry. Right. I that killed your microphone. No, 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 right it's there. fine. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a, that was it. And, and I didn't even know any better. You right. Know, Cause right. I was just, I wasn't even that deep into listening at that point, but I loved it. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. And he called it rhythm and blues. He, he said, we don't play jazz. We play rhythm and blues. Right. So, right. you know, 
But that and, is, I mean, that's that's a thing. Like you listen to like real old R and B records from mm-hmm. Kansas City or Chicago or whatever. Right. It's, uh, you know, I've I've talked with a couple Kansas City drummers about like the the history of Kansas City blues and the history of Kansas City jazz. And if you go back far enough, it's the same music. Like if you go back to Jay McShann and and Big Joe Turner and all that stuff, right. it's like is it is it blues or is it jazz? It does, you know. And and it's what you're talking about, just right. that straight ride pattern with a backbeat on the snare, uh, and it feels great. It does feel great. Yeah, it was it was fun to play. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was formative stuff, though, mm-hmm. and I learned a lot of jazz tunes early on just yeah. because of that. Because yeah, he, yeah. he sang the lyrics to all of them. Wow! So he's a really sweet guy. He he was very uh, mentorly and told me about a lot of drummers that you know. I mean, he was checking out bebop. He he liked that stuff, but he mm-hmm. really just wanted to play jazz tunes with two and four on the snare drum. That's what he liked. You right. know, that was his style. So right. you know, he was he was very sweet to. I think I was twelve years old when I when I actually played my first gig with him, uh-huh. and. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how it went. I'm sure it went well enough because he kept me around. <laughs> but I couldn't believe how cool it was that I got to do that. Yeah. And uh, that really, from a teacher standpoint, that my drum teacher trusted me mm-hmm. as a little kid to go up there and not really embarrass him and everybody else, you know. Yeah. So I think that was uh, I think that was a really important thing that happened. Yeah. In, you know, just in, in my development from an early age. Yeah. You know, but. and it seems like it was, it was formative for your taste now, because like you said, you know, you like songs, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, it sounds like Harold Betters just did songs. Like he, he, they were in the jazz style. Yeah. He played jazz trombone, but, but right. he was still singing songs. All, and like, there, there's, there's such a difference between singing songs and playing tunes. <laughs> that, that's very <laughs> you know? true. Um, that's very true. And you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for both, but, mm-hmm. but I think singing songs definitely is, um, more accessible for more people. And I'm sure Harold knew that, like you said, he was, yeah. he was checking out all the heavy bebop stuff, but when it came time for his gig, you know, do, do you think he made like a calculated, uh, uh, you know, do you think it was calculated that he said, I'm, I'm going to stay in my lane and just sing these songs and play the straight ahead swing? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, people loved him, yeah. you know. He, uh, he, he was a great entertainer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I also remember doing Christmas gigs with him where he'd play all, like, the Christmas songs. But it would be the same kind of vibe. And uh, it was just fun. People, he had everybody singing along and clapping. And he was, he was just a really good entertainer. And and he he played from the heart. Yeah. And he had a big warm sound on the trombone. He'd always be playing loud and everything. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was sweet. You know, when you when you were listening to him play, I doubt anyone was miserable or anything. You know, right. I think everybody was really happy and yeah. and and swinging and feeling good and everything. I think that's just the kind of that, that's the kind of person that he was or is. I should say. I need to find out. But. Um, and I think that made its way out into the audience too. Yeah. But really nice, really nice person that I, I seriously cannot believe he let a 12 year old kid get up there and play <laughs> music with, but Hey, it, it, it happened, you know? Yeah. So as, as you got older into high school and college, um, what was like, what was the Pittsburgh scene like? What was the Pittsburgh music scene like? And what's it like now? Are you still hooked into it? Like, I'm really, I'm not too hooked into it. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I, I should probably be, but, um, 
But it sounds like you were you were coming up at, at a time when Pittsburgh also was starting to come up. Because I think in like the last 20 years, it's kind of had a renaissance as, as a former Rust Belt city, a former oh, kind yeah. of industrial, and now it's more of a cosmopolitan kind a lot of, of... Yeah, a lot of businesses and families and everything yeah. there now. Um, well, there was a number of uh, blues bands that, that were coming from that area. Mm-hmm. Um because one thing to remember, you know, Pittsburgh does have that reputation or the history of, of being kind of a blue collar town. Mm-hmm. You know, these people like to go out and drink and ride motorcycles and, you know, they're, they're hard workers. So, you know, the blues thing is pretty popular there. Mm-hmm. A lot of blues guitar players. Um, so there was a lot of that going on. And they have they really do have a rich cultural history. Yeah. I mean, they really do. I mean, you look at the any number of really famous jazz artists, uh, people like Ahmad Jamal uh-huh. came out of Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, um, so, and, and I think, I always think of Art Blakey. He had this big, big industrial sound to me, you know, when it, when he hits the, the cymbal, it, it sounds like steel clanging, and, <laughs> you know, cold burning. It's just, it, he had this, he sounds like Pittsburgh to me. Like it sounds like the city of industry like that. Yeah. Um, Is Blakey from Pittsburgh? Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So, um, but there was a couple of key people in Pittsburgh that, um, you know, as I was coming up, I really started to, seek out because mm-hmm. because they you know they were the people that were really um making that impact on me but uh there's a legendary jazz drummer that lives up there named roger humphreys i know yeah and um he was name. he was uh the drummer well he played on tracks that was on uh horace silver song for my right, father right, right which i didn't really even know at the time because i wasn't you know again i was pretty young i wasn't really listening to that much stuff but he was a real bebop and he is he's he's still one of the best yeah. cats out there, but yeah. um, he's a real bebop drummer. When yeah. he takes a solo, I mean, it it sounds like bebop, right? You know, it's the right it's the right stuff. He plays with a great feel. And um, speaking of Horace Silver, like he's he's another composer player whose whose music is so impressionistic, and you know, totally checks he he checks the bebop box, but he also checks the like anybody can listen to it like you look at the title of the song and you hear the song and you're like oh yeah i hear it i totally hear it there's a uh, there's a song i'm obsessed with by, by him right now that's uh, it's called sighing and crying yeah and uh man it's it's like sounds like the title it sounds yep. like what it is but i just love it but, yep there was another great one i, I played in a horace silver tribute band in uh in kansas city mm-hmm. it was like the, you know the, the classic lineup quintet with a, a trumpet and, and tenor um, it was. It's still around. There's a, a great drummer playing in it uh, named Sam Wiseman in Kansas City, and it's led by Stan Kessler, a trumpet player. So we played all this Horace Silver music, and I wasn't really hip to it before that. But Stan like brought me into this group, and I had to learn all these songs. Yeah. And the one, the one I got obsessed with was uh, uh, well, there were two. Uh, Calcutta Cutie. Yep. Which is, is that the one that has the. Uh that has the uh, all the, the accessory percussion in the yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like the the you know the melody is just this haunting kind of like angular arpeggiated thing oh, that just like slithers through the chords. And uh, the other one uh, was the outlaw. Mm-hmm. Um, but just yeah, such cool tunes, such really cool funky like hummable, memorable tunes. You gotta you gotta remember why these guys were so popular, right? Right. I mean, there was a real artistry to. 
what they did. Yeah, but I, I went off on Horace. You were talking that's, about no, that's Roger okay. Humphreys. Well, Roger was out there. Um, there later on when I was in high school, um, I found out about this guy named Sean Jones, who is he's you know a top trumpet player right. in the world. Right. Um, Sean really led a very serious gig at a place called I think it was Dow's, but uh, he had been at a couple different clubs on a weekly basis and I've gotten hear him and uh, his band was as good as any. I mean, he was, he was really pushing original music, um, super light up. I mean, these, these guys came to play every, every single night. Right. And sometimes he'd open it up for a jam session at the end and, uh, we get to go sit in, but man, it was intimidating being, you know, being a kid and going up there. But I mean, he, he's really a world-class player, yes. you know? Um, so he was out there. Uh, there's there's a lot of guys. My other drum teacher when I was in in college, Dave Glover, he he was one of those guys too. He just made a really big impact on me. And he always hit me to stuff. You know, he would tell me what was going on and where, so I could go out and yeah. check it out and be there. So right, right. Um, but I went to a program up there called the the Governor School for the Arts, which I found out was is uh, been discontinued, I guess, at this point. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the things that introduced me to some people who were really deep into the art of playing jazz. I was a big fan of it and I've mm-hmm. probably had enough stuff to, together that I got into it to the, the, uh, summer program, but that really turned me around. Uh, there was a piano player, George Russell jr. Who, uh, led the jazz component of it. And, um, when I came out of there, I was serious about <laughs> jazz at that point. And that was a high school program? That was my um, summer between junior and senior year. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, when I came out of there, then I was, I was really, <laughs> really serious about it, which propelled me into college. Yeah. So, but, yeah, you know, Pittsburgh, it just, it had a really great uh, history of jazz players that came from it mm-hmm. and guys that still live there. Um if you remember the uh, guitar player handyman Negri on Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, yeah, <laughs> he actually had a uh, a weekly jam session for kids that I would go to, wow, and sit in, and you know, we he would turn like nursery rhymes into jazz tunes. Yeah, you, know, you could go in and play however well you knew how to play, right? right. And it was just fun. He was an incredibly sweet guy. I mean, really welcoming too. So, but a super killer jazz guitar player too i mean he could hang with anybody right even some of that i remember stuff on mr rogers neighborhood there'd be like a little soundtrack either you know i think fred rogers played piano yeah that guy played guitar and thinking back on it like there was some kind of heavy jazz it was great music on on that show (laughs) those guys you know they all have a lot of heart yeah um by the time i was looking at grad schools and and getting out of uh pennsylvania i was ready to seek out a different kind of climate, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, just I'd grown up in that area and didn't really want to stick around much longer. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go see what else was out there. So it was time to move, but I still really love and appreciate Pittsburgh and, and Pennsylvania and everything. It's a beautiful part of the, the world. I like yeah. to be up there, but yeah. um, I, I know there's a, a ton of players up there now that they're still world-class. I mean, I know these guys are, really great, but I haven't really stayed in touch with them like I should, Mm -hmm. I guess. But, um, part of the reason is I never was so invested in it to begin with. I think probably as I was in college and, um, the college I went to was about an hour away from the big city. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I went into town probably weekly at a certain point 
Yeah. But, um, and you left, it, it sounds like you left before, uh, you had a chance to like really develop roots in the jazz scene as, right. as more than a student. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, I was 18, 19 right. and had to try to get into bars sometimes. So it wasn't always the easiest thing to, to go into, but yeah. you know, we made the effort anyway, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, it made a good impression on me. And it was a great way to prepare for moving down here mm-hmm. to Atlanta. So, yeah. And so grad school is what brought you down here. Yeah. I went to Georgia state, um, jazz studies program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, since I had already gotten the ed degree, I mean, one of my, my goals as a high school student, even I was really, uh, always admiring my drum teacher at that point. Um, and I liked what he did. I thought, you know, he teaches at the college. He's a great player. It seems like he had a good life set up for him. I thought, yeah, that looks, that looks like a path that I should be taking. So yeah, yeah. the master's degree was really an attempt to, um, solidify some kind of college level teaching gig, right. I guess, you know, cause you really need that master's. So, um, and also to further my playing and move to a city that I could, get a little deeper into the craft. So I was looking at, um, Manhattan school of music and, uh, DePaul in Chicago and William Patterson out in, um, Jersey city. So I think, uh, between all those schools in Georgia state, uh, some of the advice somebody gave me was go where you can go for free. Cause you don't want to have like a heavy grad loan and be a musician. That's good advice. And, uh, it really was good advice. Um, because, you know, Georgia State gave me the assistantship. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, at that point, they pay you to be a student. Right. Which is awesome. Yeah. So I had a really heavy practice schedule. I'd wake up and be at the school. I forget if it was 8 or 9 a.m. But I, I made a practice contract with a friend of mine who's a piano player. <laughs> and we agreed that we would be in there by a certain time every morning or else we'd have to pay the other person a nominal fee, <laughs> which we never ended up needing because either one of us was late a certain number of times. But right. I was getting in anywhere from two to four hours of practicing a day. I had my own practice room that I could use. And um, getting to hang in Atlanta, uh, it's, I wouldn't call Atlanta a competitive scene. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I still don't think it is. I was just talking to a great drummer here, Chris Burroughs, last night yeah. about this. There really is enough work for all the drummers here, but everybody's pretty good. Yeah. Just just by default, I think, because the less prepared players, there just aren't as many opportunities for. Right. So the, the level is set kind of high, but for people who make a living as pro drummers down here, there's plenty of opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So um, somebody I forgot who was I forgot who I was talking to, but they were talking about the drummers in Atlanta. And, and he was like, there's there's 10 or 12 like a level drummers. There are no B level drummers. And then it's C on down. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the B level guys really have to rise up. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to get in the to get in the groove, really. I yeah. Because there's you can do it. I mean, you can. I would have never believed somebody when they said you can make a living as a jazz drummer in Atlanta. I Mm -hmm. said, how is that possible? (laughs) Because I was coming from playing three gigs a month, maybe. And it was corporate band kind of stuff that wasn't giving me any kind of, uh, real emotional or mental value out of it. I don't know. Right. Um, 
So, but yeah, I think that's just kind of the point. And people down here are really, the, the audiences, I, I always give them credit because they really are in tune with what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think they hear a lot of good music on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And uh, the stuff that's not really there, I don't think sticks around that long. Yeah. You know, people yeah. people want to hear good quality stuff when they go out to hear live music. Whether or not they really notice right. or, or, or out to pay attention to it, I think they can they can spot a fake pretty quickly. Yeah, most of them, I think. Especially, like, of maybe our age or, or older. I think, you know, 20-somethings and younger mm-hmm. are... A little, they they have a tougher time deciphering, you know, what what they're actually hearing and whether or not it's actually good. But they enjoy it. Yeah, it's hard to argue with somebody if you know <laughs> if they're loving every minute of what they're hearing, true. and you know you don't want to convince them that like right. no, this actually sucks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, live music is such a big part of life down in Atlanta and further south. I guess you know, yeah, um, it's a big change of pace from what I grew up with, although live music was a big deal up in Pittsburgh too. I mean, it was, it was everywhere, Mm -hmm. but, um, but there's, there's something about the South, like just with, with how deep the history is here. mm -hmm. Um, I, I feel like having, having music, just having live music as a part of daily life is, is deeper ingrained here than in in other parts of the country because of like the old folk traditions and, and the, um, you know, it, it just goes back further. Like my, I remember my wife went uh, with her girlfriend to uh, Ireland for a week because yeah. they, they uh, her girlfriend's parents had this. Um, they own a house just in rural Ireland in this tiny little village, and every night the entire village just goes bar hopping, <laughs> and they all play music. Like people just take turns playing and singing, and yeah. it's, it's not like you're making a date with a a concert that you're going to go see. It's just, there's music in the room all the time. You, you can't avoid it. Right. And I think the same thing has been true about, about the South. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's everywhere, man. It's everywhere you go. There's a, I mean, Atlanta, I'm sure you figured this out as soon as you moved down here, but there is a festival happening every weekend and not just oh, yeah. one. Like there's usually two or three somewhere right throughout the entire year. Minus yeah. when, you know, maybe December or something. Right. If it's, but, if it's between like 60 and 90 degrees, yeah. there's going to be a festival. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's probably a bottom to like how cold it will get, but definitely not a ceiling right. for how hot right. it's going to be a festival. So, you know, that was one of those things. It's like you moved out to Atlanta and now all of a sudden you're playing in front of, you know, some big audience at a festival. It's mm-hmm. just cause that is for, working guys down here that's a reality you're going to be hitting a festival because those are the kind of gigs that are around here yeah. you know it's not just for touring bands that are coming through these people are filling up their calendars with a lot of folks that just are based out of Atlanta which mm-hmm. i think is you know i think that's great i think it's great too it's it's a really rich scene and like you said it's not competitive like it's 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 big enough that I mean, it's it's extremely rich and vibrant. So there's all the you know lots of opportunity, right? Um, but there are few enough cats. Like it's not saturated with musicians, and we're probably just giving away the big secret right now. But That's right. Yeah, we don't need anybody else. <laughs> we're full up. Definitely don't move to Atlanta. <laughs> no, it's it's, uh, it's cool. It's welcoming. And like you said, everybody's good, man. And everybody is is a good person. Like I was talking with my wife last night about how like sometimes you get the call for a, a gig with a band, and then the next time around for the same gig, same band, maybe you don't get the call. Right. And 
you know, I was I was telling her, well, it's it's not like Justin Chizarek or Darren Stanley or Mar- Marlon Patton or any of these guys. It, I mean, it's not like they suck. They're all really, really good drummers and really, really good guys. So you can't argue. It's like, of course, go play the gig. Yeah. I'll get the next one. <laughs> there's, there's plenty going on. Yeah. You know, and the it's it, like you said, it, it really is a lot of good people, which uh, that that means more to me. I mean, because ultimately your coworkers become your network. Right. And in this case, you know, my coworkers are all my closest friends too. So, mm-hmm. you know, whenever we go to play music, it's really, you're already out with, with your friends, your boys or whatever, you know, yeah. and, and you, that that's a good place to get started. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's usually a good time. I mean, I couldn't be luckier to, to live here and get to make the music that we make on a regular basis. Cause these people that we're doing it with are not only just, world-class players, but they are the best human beings you could surround yourself with. So that's something that's really grown more important to me than, you know, even the music at at some point, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just the kind of people you surround yourself with. Yeah. Me too. That was definitely like, I was, I was really pleasantly surprised at, um, you know, just the, the talent pool Mm -hmm. in Atlanta and, you know, the kind of music that's going on and the quality of it. Um, but I was even more happy and, you know, me and my wife were definitely, uh, even more pleasantly surprised and, and happy to find just such good people and just kind of, you know, create a tribe very quickly. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, but you know, we don't need any more drummers. It's we're yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. Did coming to Atlanta um, force you to branch out musically, stylistically? Because um, I know you like you came here for grad school to further pursue the jazz thing. Right. Um, but how has it branched out since then? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, when I had moved from Pennsylvania, like I said, you know, I was playing a lot of corporate stuff, you know, a lot of wedding or social event kind of music, and then the occasional jazz gig. And the occasional jazz gig felt like, oh my God, this is the biggest, most important thing. And it could have been nothing important at all, but just because I was playing so little of that at the time. Um, so it was really meaningful to me. Um, I wanted more of that. And I knew that there there was a, a reality that it, it could happen in Atlanta or, or any of those cities really that, mm-hmm. that I was auditioning in, but since Atlanta was going to be my future home. Um, so, uh, but I grew up playing rock and roll. Like I loved all the music that was on the radio at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that there was a, a good wave of, of music that came out right when I was getting into playing drums. So yeah. um, I was current with everything that was on the radio at that point. And, uh, I, I was just really getting into jazz to the point where I wanted to leave that behind to the point where when I did move to Atlanta, um, 
there were a couple drummers that I met that had recommended me for gigs that were outside of the jazz box. And I actually turned them down, mm. not having any other gigs that moment. Um, because I specifically was trying to get the experience of just playing jazz and almost brand myself that way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I took it very seriously, the fact that that was what I was going to do. So um, after about, oh, I don't even know how many years, probably three years or so of doing just straight ahead stuff, um, which is amazing, by the way, to me that, you know, I could even be that lucky to get to just play straight ahead stuff. Um, I was really kind of haunted by the fact that I missed hitting the drums hard. Uh, I missed rocking. I missed playing the blues gigs. Yep. And, um, I remember somebody called me to do a church gig and it, and then they were said, yeah, it's going to be like contemporary Christian drumming stuff. Like you should come and do it. And, um, so I said, okay. And I had not done any rock playing at all since I moved to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I was working on the songs and I could not believe how hard of a time I was having playing like heel up bass drum and, and yeah. <laughs> playing group. Cause honestly, at that point I was trying to, I was like, Oh man, well, maybe I'll approach it like, like Brian blade or something like that, you know? So it was dumb. I mean, it was, it was not good. Yeah. No, um, I've, I've been guilty of some of the exact same shit. Like I'm, I'm going to bring my jazz shit to this non jazz gig and, oh, man. and you know, turn heads. Well, it, it, I didn't turn any heads. You we know? turned them for the wrong reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I did, I will say this much is no matter how that one went, it was eye opening in the fact that I realized I actually do really love playing other styles. Mm-hmm. And now that I've invested all this time into becoming a jazz drummer in quotes, uh, now I want to get back to start to play some other kind of music. And then that was kind of when I realized that, um, Atlanta is one of those cities that has all these genres represented in, in a real heavy way. Yeah. So, um, but at that point I really only had two drum kits with me and neither one of them were suitable for playing anything more than, you know, jazz, like a small group or a big band thing. Right. So, uh, so I went and got myself a vintage Slingerland kit and uh, it was, it was kind of set up more for rock playing. Yeah. And I just started trying to take, put the word out that I was ready to take some other kind of gigs. Ready so, to rock. So um, yeah, I, I just love all kinds of music so much that I thought it would be a shame to not get the opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, so I started just kind of chase down other other people to play with. Um, one of the people that I was fortunate to meet was this guy Sam Birchfield, mm-hmm. who uh, was really starting to work on some new material when I met him, and he was kind of in between drummers. Mm-hmm. So it was a good fit because I was just kind of really eager to get playing some other styles of music, and um, he was looking for somebody that that was wanting to create some new things with him too. Mm-hmm. So we really hit it off right off the bat and started working on a, uh, an album. And, uh, it was good for me because it brought me right back to that place of getting to play creative music, but still doing something different than, um, playing jazz, Mm -hmm. uh, getting to kind of come up with parts and write from the drums and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, getting into the studio, which was kind of, I don't want to say a new experience, but kind of a, uh, 
relatively unrepresented one of my playing at that point, I guess. Yeah. And certainly for non-jazz playing. Right. Yeah. And um, it quickly became apparent to me over that, you know, that course of time that you really got to change hats. You know, you got to play the rock gig like the rock gig. You got to play the jazz gig like the jazz gig. And um, so I, I found myself working and practicing playing stuff that in my head I thought I had already worked on. Yep. Again, but that that was more me getting over my ego at the time, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, really trying to work on sounding authentic, right? And and also being creative, though, you know, like mm-hmm. not not uh, shortchanging the stuff that I did want to do, but finding a way to package it that I felt like I was serving the music well, mm-hmm. and and also um, my own creative agenda, right? I guess which probably is a little too big sometimes, <laughs> you know, you gotta, gotta wrangle it in. But, yeah. but now, uh, now that I've kind of opened up that option, I guess, of, of playing different, different genres more and not specifically trying to market myself as a jazz drummer, I feel really, uh, I'm happier with my balance of gigs mm-hmm. now than, than I was because honestly I was doing so much straight ahead stuff that it was becoming less interesting to me. Yeah. And now that I'm going to take my big drums out this night and then in a couple of days, I'm going to take my bop kit out, mm-hmm. you know, in a couple of days I'm going to take my weird, uh, you know, crash cymbal, high hats, no bottom heads, <laughs> right. funky tuned, lay stuff all over the drums kit to something else. I mean, it's really cool. It's, it's, it makes it feel fresh and interesting every time. Mm-hmm. And, um, it makes me appreciate the balance of gigs that are out there. Yeah. It makes me really want to play the jazz gig. It makes me really want to play on the, on the soul gig or mm-hmm. something, you know, you look, you look forward to everything because it's not the same thing you've been doing right every week. Man, every I love week. it. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and it makes even like, you know, corporate gigs or wedding gigs or, or gigs that, um, you know, musicians typically kind of roll their eyes at and they're like, Oh, I got to go play this thing. Like the, the music that I'm playing on that gig. Cause I had a similar path to you. It was like all jazz all the time for a while. And, and then I finally just said, I got to get into this other shit. Cause that's what I fell in love with when I was eight. That's the reason yeah. I started playing drums. So, you know, on a, on a, on a gig that some other musicians might not be excited about because of the type of gig it is, I'm excited about it because I get to play all these songs that I just love oh, yeah. that I've been listening to my whole life, but have right. never played. Um, and you know, you get to go rock. It's true. Um, so yeah, it, it keeps really, it, it keeps it interesting. Yeah. I never, it, the times that I've been kind of bummed out heading to a gig cause I didn't really want to do it or, or probably could count them on two hands, I guess, you right. know, over in, the course of almost 10 years, in 10 I mean, years. Yeah. It's been, it's been really, really fun most of the time. Yeah. A lot of that I think has to do with the fact that the players on these gigs are such a high level, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. the music's good though. Yeah. You know, it's, it's stuff that's interesting to play and, uh, people have a good taste in the kind of music that they want to perform. Right. So, right. you know, it's not like we get on the gig and people are like, well, let's play that one song that everyone thinks is corny. <laughs> no, there's not very much of that. Right. You got to you got to hit them sometimes, but it's it's mostly good songs. Right. By good bands and good artists. Um so speaking of Sam, you were you worked pretty steadily with Sam for a while, played some gigs, did right. did a little bit of traveling and some recording and so forth. And um 
I remember when I first moved here and when you and I first started hanging out, you were kind of in this period of, of like transitioning away from Sam um, and, and kind of refocusing your playing and your life away from that gig because of, um, and it was, it was, you know, nothing, it was nothing personal between you and Sam. It wasn't like musical disagreements. It was like, my life is going this way and playing in this band is not always conducive to the rest of (laughs) the rest of my life. And I, I I bring this up because we, you know, we, we talk on this podcast about how gigs end, why gigs end, whether you get Mm -hmm. fired or whether you quit or whether it just ends or whatever, and just kind of how to move on from that um, in a healthy way. And like, it, it seems like you have, but I remember when you were going through it, you were, you were kind of just bummed that, that it was, you know, that it was kind of ending that, that you were going a different direction. Cause you and Sam are really good friends. You're mm-hmm. really good friends with everybody in that band. And, right. um, the thing that, the thing that Zach's not saying right now is that my wife and I were, uh, getting ready to have a baby right about, <laughs> right about the time when Zach moved the tower. I think, I think, I think she had just, she, been had, born. she had already been, been born. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. um, yeah, this is, uh, this is something that, that we've been talking about for a little while now, but yeah. Um, it was funny because, uh, Sam called a business meeting over lunch for the whole, the whole band mm-hmm. and, um, laid out everything that he, he had planned to do. And he had just asked us all really to commit, I guess, to, to being full time with him really, or as much as, as much as we could, right. you know, because knowing that you know, everybody that plays with him also has a number of other things going on too, right. because he just calls great players. You know, he, he likes to use the best guys that he can. But he was kind of asking you to make him your primary. Um, no, not even necessarily, but okay. you know, he, he, he had big plans right? and he wanted to make sure that everybody was feeling on board with the plans, I right. guess, you know, cause he's such an agreeable person that he would, you know, he would never tell you like, Hey, I have to be your only thing or else that's it. Yeah. So at the end of the, the uh, lunch meeting, I was like, well, Sam, I got a little news for you. Um, <laughs> my wife and I are, are going to have a baby and that's going to impact things. And I, I knew that there had to be a time to tell him. Yeah. And before, uh, you know, the last thing I would have wanted to do would be to drag him along mm-hmm. and uh, tell him at a time that was less opportune. So um, he is such a, a gracious band leader and friend. Mm-hmm. You know, he uh, continued to keep me a part of the operations of that group, including writing, including uh, out of town gigs, including recording and all that, knowing that. I was not going to be as flexible mm-hmm. anymore. Um, just due to the fact that I'm really serious about being a family man as much as I am yeah. a musician. And um, Sam's a, Sam's brought up from a really good family. He he gets it. Yeah. You know. Um, so uh, what we ended up doing really was playing a lot, playing a lot of gigs, and then there'd be things that I couldn't do. And you know, he worked some other drummers and. Uh, we had a really good working agreement and we would go and, and play and we record and there'd be some other guys playing and that was fine. Cause I knew that ultimately Sam is a little bit younger than me. Mm-hmm. He has a totally different agenda than I have. And, um, he needs to go out and tour the world 
take his music out there right, and spread the net as far as he can. Yeah. I knew that at a certain point, it wasn't just the fact that we were having a baby, but I also teach at two colleges, which mm-hmm. I'm very serious about teaching at too. Yeah. That, um, I, I couldn't really leave for a month. Right. That wasn't ever an option. Right. For me, you know? Yeah. Um, and not that it won't ever be an option, but at not this right point, now. it's it's really not. <laughs> yeah. Know? So, um, and he got that. He understood that. And mm-hmm. and I really appreciate the fact that he didn't kick me to the curb immediately, you know, because some people would. Mm-hmm. And not even on a personal level, just the fact that they need somebody that they know they can uh, count on for that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, but man, we, we had such a good a good run of, uh, of all those things, you know, recording and playing. And uh, we work together now. And uh, doing some different kind of stuff, you know, we're, we're still writing some music together, mm-hmm. um, still recording some music together. And of course, we're still good, fe- for, uh, good friends and we're, you know, spending a lot of time together, too. So um, but all that all that was cool. And I think the main thing about all of it is being up front with your band leaders and being honest. I, there is a real fear, I think, for some to maybe mask the truth of your, of your situation for fear of losing the gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, drummers get not just drummers, but I, I feel like musicians insecurities tend to make them protective of a gig. Yeah. And I think that the secret here, um, in staying in good favor with everybody is being as honest as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never, I was never going to shortchange my family life. And I also was never going to shortchange my musical life either. Mm-hmm. And um, because of that, I, I just think having that honest talk with your, you know, with your your band leader, the guys that you're working with, and say like, "Hey, when we're on the gig together, if I agreed to be it at the gig or at, at the studio or whatever, I'm fully committed to that. And then when I'm home, I'm fully committed to that. Right? You know. And right. uh, I think I think it's when you kind of have distraction of trying to keep a foot in both places. Yeah. You know, and you got to set it, it really takes some, some, uh, premeditation, you know, you got to be able to set it up so you can focus on those zones when you're there. Right. You know? Right. But, um, a lot of it too has to deal with the person that you're working with. Yeah. And just how understanding they are. Right. So, and you, you talk about like being willing to lose the gig, you know, yeah. I, Sam, uh, fortunately for, for your, working relationship and your personal relationship, Sam, uh, was just totally game and totally got it and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep you around as much as possible and we'll do what we can do. And whatever you can't do, I'll figure something else out. But other band leaders, um, would, would say, well, then I gotta, I gotta cut you loose. Like I gotta find someone who can be my full-time guy. Right. Um, and I think they're within their rights to do that. Of course. But being, like you said, being upfront and honest about like, here's what's coming up for me. Here's what my priorities are. Um, so you can do, do with that information, what, what you will. <laughs> but if you, if you right. offer that honest information in just in a goodwill kind of way, um, I think it, what, whether the gig continues for you or not, I think it leaves the relationship on good standing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to leave anybody hung up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to say, yeah, let's, let's go out. I'm going to play every gig with you. And then not be able to. Right. Um, and I think he appreciated that because ultimately I know that he, he had a game plan and has a game plan for how he's going to continue to 
to spread his music out to all the people. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't, I shouldn't slow that down. Right. You know, I really shouldn't. Right. But I also... And so, like, some of that game plan involves being out for two or three weeks or a month. Absolutely. And playing for not much money. So he needs to, you know, he needs to go and do that. And right. I can't... I That's not fair yeah. on my end to prevent him from doing that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but it, but I don't think by any means was it uh, the end of a, of a gig. But, you know, we continue to talk a lot about the music. Uh, we've recorded some things recently and... You know, we'll continue to work together. I it's know. a it's a new chapter. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's just a little different. I I think when I was going to become a dad, I was expecting, uh, maybe a certain musical lifestyle, mm-hmm. and I have had to adapt a little bit. But I, I don't think, uh, I don't think I'm in any different set of musical terms than I originally agreed to. Mm-hmm. I'm still playing the kind of gigs that I want to play. I may not be playing as many gigs. I mean, really, when I moved to Atlanta, and I know that when you moved to Atlanta, we had a, a talk about this, but playing every single call that you get, um, now it's it's not 100% possible to do that because really, in, in my mind, I want to be home a little more. Yeah. You know, I, wanna, I don't want to miss things mm-hmm. with my family, you know, with my wife and with my daughter. So um, the terms of the gig, when I get called for it, you know, I will have to evaluate things that I never did before. Yeah. But I'm okay with those, with those terms. Cause this is, you know, this is where we are. Right. right. And, um, I mean, even before we did this interview, like you were checking in with your wife about like, did, did she wake up yet? Are you going to take her to the place or should <laughs> I take her? Or like, you know, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, I love music so much. I love playing music. I love being at gigs and, you know, and I also love my family and, as a musician, it is not easy to hold down what you do um, and hold down life as a family person. Yeah. You know, you, you yeah. really have to work tirelessly to keep them both up. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter was born. Uh, she's almost two. She'll be two in a month now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was getting up at 6 a.m., groggily walking down the stairs to my practice pad kit that I had set up, which made a little noise, but not enough to wake her up. My cup of coffee and I would get some practicing in while my wife and my daughter slept because when they got up, I wanted to be available to them. Uh And, uh, you know, you still have to practice. You you gotta, you gotta keep shedding and Mm -hmm. keep your chops up because, you know, I, I couldn't justify letting stuff slip. Right. So the sacrifice really is, you know, maybe I'm not sleeping as much as I used to be, but I never, I don't really care about that. You know, I, I still value what we do and and every level so much, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't want to be asleep for my family and I don't want to be asleep for the gig. Yeah. And there've been times where I've been sleepy, but it it doesn't really matter. You know, what matters is that you're making the most out of everything that you're doing. Right. And you're present for everything. Yeah. Cause you know, if you, if you, if you start showing up to the gig and you're like, whatever, I'm just going to phone this thing in because I, I don't really care today. I'm, I'm not feeling it. Right. You know, eventually I think that'll become a habit. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to have that mm-hmm. habit. I've worked really hard to uh, secure this kind of uh, musical environment that I'm in, the people yeah. that I play with. And it would not be fair to myself or them to let any of that slip, mm-hmm. you know, nor would it be fair to to ignore what I have going on at home to 
to keep up with what I'm doing on the bandstand. So what I view it as is putting equal energy into both and equal effort. Which, yeah. And it's, know, it's kind it's of double energy. Yeah. Like you gotta, you gotta go full on in both things, you know? And so that's why this uh, interview is brought to you by Zach's good coffee pre- preparation. <laughs> <laughs> but it helps. Though. Both, both Justin and I needed uh, round two of coffee. It was time this morning. Yeah. It was time. <laughs> Talk about the two uh, college gigs that you're doing. You, you teach yeah. at, you teach at Emory University and Kennesaw State University. That's right. And from what you've told me, those are two very different kinds of schools with two very different kinds of students. Um, right. They're both at the collegiate level, but like, talk about the difference between those two gigs. Sure. Um, well, I started teaching at uh, Emory while I was still a grad student. And that's a private university, right? It is a private school, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, and that is actually under the direction of Gary Motley. Right. Um, so, yeah, I started I started teaching there. Um, I've never had a lot of students at Emory uh, and even fewer actual music majors, but you can major in music there. Mm-hmm. Um, what I tend to get as my students there are people who are majoring in something else that have a background in drumming. Or maybe not. Mm-hmm. I've had a few ultimate beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're coming into it from a perspective of wishing to continue playing the drums or to make it a part of their life. Yeah. But it's not their number one priority. Right. You know, my priorities with them, though, are still to get them to be playing well and enjoying what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But I also realize that most of these students are probably not going to go on to become full-time musicians. Mm -hmm. If they did, I think that would be great too. But, um, so there are different kinds of students, you know, I've had, I've had a variety. A lot of times it's, it's business, uh, you know, people who are majoring in business and running their, um, MBAs, I guess. But, um, it's, uh, I have to remind myself cause I'm, I'm such a, uh, diligent practicer, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always have laid out for me what I want to practice and how I'm going to work and the amount of time I'm going to spend on each concept and how I'm going to attack it. These, these students don't really always want to hear it from me <laughs> like that. Right. Um, if I forget to keep it a little more lighthearted, I'll lose them. Mm. So my teaching style adjusts slightly to work with. Right. And it's not every student either. I mean, you know, I've had some really diligent practicers that I've had to keep inspired and, you know, really find creative ways to keep them engaged. Right. Um, so I guess the main difference is understanding how to um, read the students. But I, I wouldn't say that it it's there's this type of student at Emory and this type of student at Kennesaw. I think it has more to do with the fact that these guys are majors. Right. And these guys are not. Right, right. Guys and girls. Um, so I just have to remind myself that I can't treat every student the same, which mm-hmm. is, you know, something I'm learning and having been in education for a little while now. Yeah. Um, at Kennesaw, I've dealt with a lot of music majors who most of those students, you know, this is a public university, but. And that's a big school, isn't it? It's it, like, is it like 25,000 students? You know, I don't, I don't know the actual number, but. I, I remember hearing recently like how big it was and I was like, holy shit, it's, it's huge. It's grown a lot. Yeah. It actually reminds me a lot of where I went to college. Really? Though. Yeah. 
Um, you know, a lot of these students are paying their own way through school. Uh-huh. And uh, what that means to me is when, when you're paying your way through school and you're a music major, you're basically saying my life depends on my instrument and my playing, right? which I can really dig. And these, these students have had a real um, emotional connection to their playing mm-hmm. because a lot of them, I realize if they don't, if they're not really gigging by the time they leave here, they're going to have to have some other kind of job that they didn't ultimately set out to do. Right. So, so they're kind of signing up for an ass kicking. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they are. I mean, whether they know it or not, (laughs) um, you know, you have to be, you have to be really uh, specific and and I don't want to say super hard on them, but I, and with all my students, regardless of where we are, um, I try to be as realistic with them as possible. Mm hmm. Um, I've had some students that I've had to have the talk with, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea Mm -hmm. that you're playing music or or that you're going to try to make this a a life uh, profession. Um, And uh, a lot of times I have to dig a little deeper than than just being uh, an instructor. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times it's a lot more of life skills. Yeah. You know, I tell my students all the time that it's not just – how good you are at the drums because you don't go out and meet anybody. And so no one knows you can play. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, ultimately I don't think it's any secret that people are calling their friends for gigs. Yep. Uh, everywhere, not just in Atlanta. Yeah. That's just in LA or New York. Like people call their friends. Right. And just because there's a 20 year difference or more between you and the person that's calling you, which is often the case, Mm -hmm. sometimes even a bigger gap. Mm Mm-hmm does not mean that you can't be a friend to that person or else a good uh, uh, acquaintance with them. Right. At least a good hang on the gig. But I have never met a student at this point that thought, all right, well, if I just get as good at the drums as I can, then everybody will call me. (laughs) They've literally all thought that. And uh, there's a lot of great drummers that are getting, uh, or not just drummers, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, all these instrumentalists that are getting closer to graduating and I'm, I'm sitting down with over lunch, you know, where we'll, we'll always go and try to find some time to hang outside of the school mm-hmm. and say, listen, you need to be on gigs or at least finding your way to gigs. Right. Um, first off, I mean, the experience of going and witnessing players that are ultimately going to be your network and your coworkers mm-hmm. and how they handle it. And you know, what do they dress like when they show up to the gig and, where do they set their drums up when they're playing that stage and what door do they leave out of, and right. what, you know, and what kind of car do they drive and <laughs> what do they order off the menu or how, you know, how do they interact with right. the leaders and did, how they, did they get drunk them. and how did that go? How did that go? <laughs> I mean, that's the college is a, um, a safe place yeah. to get it together. Right to make some really bad decisions, uh, <laughs> to make some musically bad decisions. Yeah. Yeah. It's a safe place to figure it out. Right. And, um, when you get out, it's, it's on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was thinking about this, this, uh, interview that I read with Kenny Washington and he was talking about when you put yourself out there, that's the beginning. Mm. If you don't have it together, people are going to hear that you might not get another chance to make that second impression on somebody. Right. So 
you know, my, I'm always thinking, you know, my advice to these, these students that I'm working with is you have the opportunity now to get it together and you can actually kind of go out and hear some music and be invisible and you don't even have to go and participate in it. Maybe right. you can sit back you maybe don't even introduce yourself, but take notes, right? You know, write down tunes that you don't know and write down information that you may need to know later on, but um, get familiar with the players. And then when you feel ready, get up there and start mm-hmm. to make that impression. Yeah. You know, because it's really, you have to be able to play. That's part of it. But the gigs that you're getting are not going to come out of the blue. Everybody doesn't just find out, Oh wow, this person's really great. I mean, that FaceTime with everyone is so essential. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we have some really heart to heart conversations at both schools, you know, but, Mm -hmm. um, I want these guys and girls to be able to have a lifetime of enjoying what they're doing Mm -hmm. and doing it at a high level. And, um, sometimes it can be a little hard to figure out what path they're going to take because it is a jazz degree, right? You know, or or a jazz concentration, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on which school we're at. But, that doesn't mean that they're going to be a jazz drummer. And oftentimes I think, uh, that's just a part of it or maybe a small part of it. Um, the bigger thing is how are you going to make a living in music? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I try to be as upfront as possible. And and that was, I was lucky that my teachers did that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, the last thing that you should ever do is come out of, of music program with no gigs and, uh, no plan as to how you're going to make it work out. Right. So honesty can and, be and no, no sort of knowledge about what you're getting into. Cause like you said, you know, before you graduate, you should be all over the clubs, all over the venues, watching music and looking yeah. at the people who are doing it. Cause if you wait until you graduate and then you show up at those places, um, what do you, how are you going to, how are you going to provide for yourself for the, six months it's going to take or whatever to get right. And, and how, how are you going to have like the, the confidence and the little bit of seasoning that, you know, cause nobody comes out of school just like fully seasoned and right. ready, ready to hit the scenes, but, but you can certainly do some preliminary work. Like you, like you're talking about, get right. familiar with the venues, with the players and, and just, you know, get a picture of what kind of career, what kind of life you're signing up for. Um, yeah, I think it takes, it takes a while to get into momentum. Yeah. 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 You know, um, but there's, there's space and gigs for these guys and girls. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are opportunities out there. Um, we need players that we can trust that are going to show up on time with the right understanding of what they're getting into, make sure they're dressed appropriately, make sure they have a vehicle that they can get to the gig with or mm-hmm. some transportation and, um, and, and be a good hang yeah. for the bandstand. Yeah. So, you know, that's what I'm really uh, trying to produce out in the real world. Well, God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) We need more of you. The last thing I want to talk about is we were we were talking about before uh, we started the interview was was uh, the whole photography thing, because I love I love talking with guys about what else they're interested in other than drums, other than music. Um, and, and for you, that's become photography and it's, it's not just a, an alternative art form or whatever. It's kind of a practical thing for you to, uh, <laughs> to deal sometimes. I like, I like what you said about being practical. Yeah. <laughs> um, it made a lot of sense to me. I don't know why I'm not exactly sure how, but, um, 
you know, from a pretty young age, I, I always admired people with a camera. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but I always thought, like, that guy looks cool with a camera. <laughs> um, when my wife Liz and I, when we got married, um, along the way, she found a photojournalist that would ultimately do our engagement photos and our, our wedding photos named Joe Apple. And he's based out of Pittsburgh. And I mean, he spent a lifetime being a photojournalist. Uh, he's actually from the same hometown that I am. Um, but we went out for our engagement photo shoot and uh, I was a little nervous cause I'd never been really photographed intentionally before that I was aware of. Right. Other than my first set of, press photos that I got when I moved to Atlanta and I needed yeah. some headshots and stuff like that. But he was such a cool guy. You know, he, he knew the city. He took us to cool places that I never knew existed mm-hmm. in the city that I'd spent a lot of time in. And, um, he, he had such a nice demeanor about him and, um, man, he was so in control of, of the camera and really got some great pictures and some, I mean, just some incredible views. And he really captured, you know, that love and everything that, that, you know, we're this engaged couple, we're getting ready to be married. We're super excited about our wedding. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he captured that with, with his photos. Yeah. And a good photographer can bring it out of you. And he like, did. Yeah. He, he knew we were nervous. Right. Right. They can, they can totally tell. And it's not just about like finding the right shot or the right framing or whatever. Like photographers, I, I went through the same thing with wedding photos and engagement photos. Like they talk to you. They do. They talk, they kind of direct you and just snap you out of your head. That's right. Um, you know, he, he really worked that kind of magic out that was there, you know? Yeah. Um, and he didn't really know us, but he really took the time to get to know us, which I think was really special. Mm-hmm. Um, so day of our wedding, he was kind of like a calm force for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of wedding gigs down here. Yeah. It's a, it's a really kind of fun and easy way to make some good money. Mm-hmm. And, um, I see these wedding photographers and I, I pay attention to how they're treated yeah. and, and how they present themselves. And it ranges vastly. I mean, it's, just, it's, I think of it just like music, you know, yep. every kind of people out there, but, um, you know, I was, I was thinking how fortunate we were to, to have his cool and calm, vibe around mm-hmm. you know and he made us comfortable and he and he captured i mean we have the most beautiful um book from our from our wedding the pictures he took including a a big canvas of one of my favorite photos from the day which was when our limousine broke down uh he he pulled us over to this kind of side nook with um the sun was behind us and, and he got the most beautiful silhouette of us uh-huh. um standing in this stone archway hmm. that would have never happened had had our limo work run properly, <laughs> but he, he really improvised just like jazz musicians do you know i mean it, i don't want to make a a typical reference there but I mean, it really is like that and he and he made it fun and um i i don't know why but i just that stayed with me and 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 also the fact that i've always admired people that that were photographers so you know a, a while ago it really i don't even know if it's been a year but um, I'd been just reading and watching YouTube videos and learning as much as I can. I, you got to keep in mind, Zach, I've never had an, an, an interest or a hobby outside of music. Right. I was never good at sports. I, I didn't really care much about anything that I was doing besides playing music. Uh-huh. And then, you know, when I met my wife and then when we started our family and all that, you know, those are my, those are my interests. Right. Um, 
if I lost my arms and legs or something and I couldn't, you know, play music, I, I have nothing to offer at that point, you know, besides <laughs> who I am, right? Well, that's something. It's something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of been fun, you know, to learn a new trade. You know, mm-hmm. at this point in drumming, to learn a new skill or a new uh, genre or a new technique or something is very tedious. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time. Uh, the the advances are, are slow compared to like when you're a college student, someone shows you a brush pattern and then another one. And then you're like, wow, like now I know 10 brush patterns. Right. Like every day is an exponential sort of leap. In it's, your, yeah. Huge yeah. leap. So it's kind of been fun in, in the way that I get to um, learn something new that is totally foreign to me. And that, that every page I turn of the book I'm reading, it's like a whole nother world that I'm going to have to spend years to, to figure out. Yeah. But one of the biggest reasons um, obviously besides having a really cute toddler at home to take pictures of and my <laughs> wife and everything is, uh, we get to travel places like Juno, yeah. all over, all over the world in some cases mm-hmm. because of music. And I couldn't help but to think just in past years of going up to New York and Boston or wherever, you know, wherever we're going to play that I should be taking home more memories alongside of the musical memories because mm-hmm. um, I'm getting to go out and I love to eat and I love to go to coffee shops and like experience the, the culture and the food and the, everything of the places that I'm going. But yeah. now it's given me a real reason to get on my feet when we have downtime. I hate staying at the hotel or yeah. at the place where, you know, put up for a day or two. Nothing, nothing about that appeals to me. Right. I'll probably sleep less when I'm on the road than I do. I know some guys like, they're like, Oh man, I'm away from my, my my kids are going to wake me up at 7 a.m. Man, I'm up, you know, I'm trying to get the sunrise and see where, you know, and it's it's really been fun because it's kind of allowed me to explore cities that I'm visiting mm-hmm. in a way deeper way, you know, and, and getting to go down roads that I would have never gone down if I was just there to play music. Right. So part of going back to that thing we were talking about at the beginning about getting in the right headspace before yeah. the gig, man, it's it's fun. If I know I have an hour even before the gig, like, okay, we finished sound check. We're all going to go out and eat dinner. You got a little downtime and then be back for an eight o'clock hit. Well, you know what? After dinner, man, I grab my, my camera and I go hit the streets and um, I'm just as excited to come home and upload my photos now and, and see what I got while I was there and um, catalog these experiences. Yeah. And I love taking it to the venue because, man, I know, you know, Zach and I are both uh, big fans of sparkly drum kits. Oh, indeed. And um, all the sparkles all those stage lights and, you know, it's not just the drums, but it's, it's your, you know, your coworkers, your, the, the cats you're on the gig with, you know, when they're up there with their horn or, you know, the piano is all, is all clean and shining under those lights. I mean, you can, you can really get some cool, unique pictures that, you know, that will document what happened. Mm -hmm. So, um, I take it everywhere with me. Yeah. And, um, I, it's kind of, I haven't really looked back since, you know what I mean? It's just always, it's like a part of my drum setup now, you know, if I'm taking, I'm getting on the road to go play, I'm taking my camera too. Yeah. So it's been really fun. I've, I've been enjoying it. So I'm hoping to, to allow it to be a lifelong process now. And, um, it's already become almost a daily part of life for me as well as like a natural habit to be in just like picking up the drumsticks and going to practice and everything too. So, you know, I just, I love it. And I feel like it does, express another 
side of who you are as a person, you know, yeah, through the lens. Right, right. Well, man, it, it seems like you got a good a good life carved out here for yourself. Certainly trying. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, every day isn't easy, but, you know, we, we do the best we can. And, you know, I, I love every minute of it. Really. Yeah, yeah. I won't complain about it. It's, it's good to see you, man. It was great talking with you. You too, Zach. Thank you for having me here. Good dude, right? I always enjoy hanging and talking with Justin. He's sharp-witted and good-hearted, and he brings both of those qualities to the music he plays. Once again, go to patreon.com slash working drummer. Donations of all levels are accepted and greatly appreciated. We also greatly appreciate Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Come back next week for Matt Krause. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.